ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. You can help support the podcast by going to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and click on the Patreon donate button and join the table of ranks. It's been a while since I've dealt with the Russian military, its actions in eastern Ukraine and Syria, and its posturing vis-a-vis NATO. And there's no better person than Michael Kaufman to turn to to talk about these issues. He's pretty much my go-to guy if I want to learn something about the Russian military without hyperbole, over-speculation, and hysteria. He's been an indispensable critic of some of the popular formulas for understanding Russian foreign policy, namely hybrid warfare and Gerasimov doctrine. Unfortunately, though, I get the impression that many policymakers in Washington, D.C. don't want to hear what he has to say, except for maybe those who listen to the SRB podcast. Michael Kaufman is a research scientist at the CNA Corporation and fellow at the Kennan Institute, where he specializes in security and defense in Eurasia. He comments widely on Russian military affairs and foreign policy. He also blogs on the Russian military at his site, Russian Military Analysis. You can also find the list of his many recent publications there as well. Here's Michael Kaufman. So I, I thought we'd start uh, our conversation by having you give your a general assessment of U.S.-Russia relations, and particularly since you focus mostly on, on military affairs, what is the what is your 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 current assessment, and what place does the Russian military have in it? Well, although this might sound somewhat glib, I think my assessment of U.S.-Russia relations, by and large, is that they are in a downward trajectory and essentially a degenerative spiral, right? Where both countries are taking measures and um, they're not even necessarily reciprocal measures. They're in some parts asymmetric responses to different things. But by and large, the relationship is steadily disintegrating in my view. And it's unclear what the ultimate bottom of this will be. Particularly, I would add that Although Russia has been, you know, quite actively pushing, I'd say, a downward spiral in relations for some years, the United States has now, for domestic political reasons, clearly had taken measures that will have a long-lasting strategic impact on the relationship. And here I mean the congressional passing of sanctions and the fact of taking away some of the president's authority and a lot of negotiation room because they didn't trust him, right? In terms of the role of the Russian military, well... Look, whenever relations between countries decline to this point, then, uh, you know, military matters, capability-based assessments, and people who are focused on security issues, deterrence, and the like, they become very prominent voices. In fact, they begin to drive the conversation. And so the relationship is very quickly taken over by the military side and the security services of the two countries because the only people that are talking, by and large, are them, or having any serious substantive conversations, right? 
military to military contacts at, at, at some bare minimum level are still maintained. But on the whole, look, the relationships become adversarial. And the the dream, the I think the ideal scenario is that you manage an adversarial relationship with a pure nuclear state such that you don't become active enemies and never actually go to war. But in the scenario, people who are looking at each other's militaries, they become the most prominent voices in policy making. And so now you will see a lot of policy, I think, by and large made on the basis of the fact that us and Russia have uh, an adversarial relationship and we expect to have one for quite some time. But there are, I mean, talk a bit about these kinds of contacts, because I see this in the, you know, someone who doesn't watch this military relationship very closely, you do see some things in the media about, you know, communications around, you know, deconfliction around Syria and things like that. So do you have a sense of what the state of those contacts are? Yeah, I actually think those contacts are pretty good. I think that um, uh, officials tend to somewhat underplay uh, the extent of mill-to-mill uh, -mill relations with Russia and the contacts that we have. I mean, first of all, they're necessary at various levels. Um, you can see, for example, during the last Zappa exercise, right, you saw clear photos of Gerasimov calling up, you know, General um, Scaparotti, I think, uh, Commander Yukon. But uh, in Syria in particular, I think that uh, in terms of deconflicting channels, although... At various points, let's say in the past year or two, where Russians have been very upset by things such as our cruise missile strikes against Al-Sharad Air Base, um, and they claim that they had torn up the deconfliction channel and mill-to-mill -mill ties, the reality is that they really didn't. And so a regular announcements about the suspension of mill-to-mill -mill, uh, contacts between U.S. and Russia, I think, by and large, are untrue. And if anything, they've probably gotten better over the past year. Yeah, that's what's actually... Um quite interesting and, and hard to to set, assess like what's going on if if you know you're not somebody like you who pays really close attention and has good contacts in, in both of these places because you know there there has been a lot of recent kind of hand wringing and to some extent hysteria around the Russian military particularly around the Zapid 2017 exercises which I just saw that you published something about it today but I unfortunately didn't get a chance to read it uh, so why don't you talk about what are the, the myths and realities in terms of the Russian military's posturing vis-a-vis -vis NATO? All right. Well, look, the the myth is that there's been some sort of um, large Russian military buildup on NATO's border. And and there's – um, but by and large, there's a great deal of misunderstanding, I feel, on the Russian military, and that's a logical consequence – of analytical overcorrection. And you can see that in Zappa 2017 as well, various statements that were made um, on the Western side going into, into this exercise. Reason being is that, by and large, Russian military reforms of 2008 and the military modernization program that was launched in 2011 were kind of dismissed. And so Zappa 2013, right, was, I think, looked at by many in in, in, in Western political circles is de facto a non-event. Um, and in that regard, sort of what you may consider to be the perception of the Russian military threat was far too low. And having grossly underestimated it and not followed it and not invested in the resources, the analysis in order to, to stick with it and track it, people were horrified and surprised, you know, in 2014 during the Russian annexation of uh, Crimea and invasion of Ukraine. And they were further surprised by the fact that Russia could actually do expeditionary operations in Syria in 2015, Right. Okay, as a consequence of that, you have a logical overcorrection, where now Zappa 2017 is coming, and people say, we were wrong, Russians are not four feet tall, they're really 12 feet tall. And the reality is that they're wrong on both counts, but that's, uh, but that's to be expected. So there was, of course, um, 
you know, these uh, a, lot, a lot of basis expectations, but um, I'll, I'll deal with the question on, on Russian posture against near NATO first. So actually, um, the first several years of Russian reforms and modernizations were not all driven with intent to build up force against NATO. In fact, they were demobilizing forces on their western borders, moving them elsewhere, and largely underfunding the ground forces in the airborne, and not really spending at all like an actual large Eurasian land power. Uh, that all changed with uh, the conflict in Ukraine, right? So 2014 came around, the Russian general staff reassessed their priorities, and they said, oh, you know, actually, uh, turns out we're going to need a lot more ground forces than we thought. We're going to need them on the border with Ukraine in the long term. We have to bring a lot of units back, and we have to create new units, and so we have to change spending priorities back to the ground forces. So what's been driving since 2014, a lot of Russian spending and created a giant um, sucking sound, both on personnel and material, right? Like men and tanks and um, and a lot of ground force equipment is a desire to set up a ring of divisions and some brigades all around Ukraine, running from Ukraine's border, Belarus, all the way uh, to the south and southeast, along with a large buildup in Crimea, because since they annexed Crimea, that's the most strategically valuable piece of real estate in Ukraine that allows you to um, control the de facto the entire Black Sea. So uh, in that regard, most of Russian spending and build up what you might say modernization of forces, creating new units has been around Ukraine and much of it's to the southeast, quite far away from NATO. Um, on NATO's quote unquote borders themselves in the Baltic region, it's important to understand here that um, I think the conversation on the subject uh, is somewhat unintelligent because okay well st petersburg is like 20 30 minutes from estonia right so uh we know right it's very hard for russia to have a military and there's often a struggle where nato people themselves uh, can't quite explain where is it russia is exactly supposed to park its military units if not by its cities all right all right it's not you know russia did not expand st petersburg to estonia so right nor did it put moscow where it is recently um you know, and then there's also, of course, the fact of Kaliningrad. So what's been going on is, by and large, the units that Russia had in Kaliningrad and around St. Petersburg, the CIS Combined Arms Army, were the oldest, least modernized, and lowest priority. That being said, over the years, they made steady improvements, introduced uh, uh, some new uh, equipment. I'm not going to get too far into the weeds here, but... They're now finally getting to the northern parts of Russia and the Baltic region when we talk about modernization, right? And somewhat expanding the ground footprint. I think that a lot of that is still to come this year and in the coming several years. So um, when you see slow modernization upgrades of, let's say, S-300 to S-400, now introduction of brand new aircraft um, in Kaliningrad, and steady upgrades of units, that's all coming in the next couple of years. I will also expect that, you know, mm, uh, SS-21 Torchka is the la one of the last few missile regiments left to be upgraded in Kaliningrad, will be upgraded to Iskanders in the coming years as well. So suffice to say, it's been a low-priority area. Russians feel that they are done with a lot of modernization they've wanted to do in other regions. Now they're coming to the Baltic and to the Northern Fleet, which is in the Joint Arctic Command. Um, so is this really a buildup? Not so much. It's principally a modernization. I mean, you cannot, I'll be frank, it's not like they were going to be fighting with 25-year-old equipment forever, right? I mean, a lot of the equipment at, the, at that stage was beginning to be older than most of the people manning it, 
Okay, so that modernization is likely. I think you will see some expansion um, of, of military presence footprint in the coming years. It won't be significant. And part of the reason why is, A, they are worried about how scared um, NATO might get and what the response from NATO will be, right? They're, they're kind of careful. They want to slow cook it. And what's happening is that the security environment in the Baltic region is basically um, kind of being slowly simmered where over years you'll see an expansion, I think, of capability from both sides. And, and can you talk about what you mean by modernization? I mean, clearly it's, it's you know, updating equipment, new weaponry, you know, recycling out the old. But is there, is there more to it than that? Okay, modernizations, for example, you know, you take the, the squadron of Su-24s that are in Kaliningrad, you know, from Soviet era, and you know, they're now replacing them with Su-30SM heavy multi-role fighters, which are way better and more capable of modern, right? Or you take um, Torchka U, which is going to expire and nobody makes it anymore because it's 30 years old, and eventually you're going to replace it with Iskander, right? The next fallen system. And you're going to take, you know, your T-72B1 tanks, and you're going to swap them out with upgraded B3s, which are still like a just a modernized version of the T-72, um, but it's just more capable, right? So this is what I mean by modernization. Um, in terms of footprint expansion, I think probably you're going to get a few more units in, in Kaliningrad, just maybe conversion of the one of the regiments there into full brigade, and maybe adding some armored uh, battalions to the airborne division in Pskov, which is just south of... Um, St. Petersburg, but I don't think you're going to see a large military footprint near the Baltic. One thing that's important to note is that, look, Russian military moves along interior lines by railroad, and with the expansion of Russian ground forces, it is true that all these divisions and units that they're starting to build up around Ukraine, they will, you know, in a time of crisis, be able to readily load up a railroad and then move towards Belarus or through Belarus towards those borders. That's a fact. But that's almost inevitable effect. If you give Russians enough time, they can move units from the Far East by railroad to the Western Theater, too. And they have during historic wars. So the, the long and the short of it is at some point you have to kind of draw a line and say, this is what I'm counting as Russian force posture against a hypothetical conflict with NATO. These are probably second echelon following units. But I'm not going to say that units being created a thousand plus kilometers from the border with NATO are actually part of a buildup because it's not very sensible to make that argument. In that case, the entire Russian territory and all 13 time zones are part of the buildup. Now, I know there's at least I've seen mention over the years about transforming Russia, Russian, the Russian military um, away from a conscript army into a more volunteer army. Is that still part of a, a plan, and what's the status of that, if if any? Yeah, absolutely. I, actually, they've done reasonably well. So their goal was to add fifty thousand more contract troops, um, and by contract, that that's what they mean essentially by volunteer army. That is people who um, typically do service as conscripts, and then at the end of their one year conscript service, they're strongly they're encouraged and incentivized with with pretty decent money and pay and benefits to sign a contract for various lengths to serve in the military like a volunteer military. Um, the goal is to have 50000 per year. They've actually done reasonably well. So if I was to very briefly kind of rack and stack the Russian armed forces for you, I'd say it's probably around 900000 strong today, which is it's been expanding um, year on year in terms of size of the force. Can, can you put that into proportion with other militaries around the world? Well, um, Obviously, it's quite smaller than the United States military, which has several million men and women under arms, right? Um, proportionally to other militaries, it's a fairly large 
total armed force relative to most countries, keeping in mind that Russia has a pretty large population, obviously much smaller than China's or, or America's. Um, let me give you uh, interesting comparisons that I think will perhaps be more meaningful than just broad numbers, right? So, for example, Russia's ground forces are quite small for the country. If we take Russia's ground force and Russian airborne together, everybody, we might get 330, 340,000 troops, right? By comparison, the ground force of Pakistan or Turkey is about 500,000 almost, right? Like, so um, U.S. ground force, I think we're at maybe 450,000 now. And if you were to add Marines to that, you'd get another 180,000 out of that and a very large reserve. Um, uh, Kind of what was the relevance of all that? Well, so the Russian actual land army is not all that large, and it cannot force generate that large of a force to go into battle, and it does not have a built-up reserve, a ready operational reserve. This is something, this is something that, that the Russian military has been working on, but it never got done. Um, in terms of the how the force breaks down between volunteer and conscript, well, the figures are actually pretty good. So in the Russian military, probably have somewhere close to 220,000 officers, maybe another 60-plus thousand um, warrant officer, officers. And then you have probably getting close to an even mix of contract servicemen versus annual conscripts, maybe at around 320,000 or so contract troops and maybe similar number or quite close to it of conscripts. I think, and to be clear, I think it's um, important to understand that the Russian goal is not to eliminate conscripts. It's to get down to a very small figure because conscripts are very uneven. Most of the conscripts are in the ground forces and the airborne. For example, the Navy has 94% contract staff, and conscripts only do onshore duty. There are, no con- there are no conscripts on Russian ships or submarines. Very few conscripts in Russian Air Force. The reason why is, look, you don't have to be a super well-trained person to drive a truck. So there are many duties that a conscript with several weeks of training can perform and can be effective at performing in Russian ground forces. It does not have to be a rocket scientist. And once they get down to a number that's lower than 300,000, maybe towards 250,000, demographically that that uh, biannual rotation of conscripts is very sustainable. I see. So so the idea is is basically you, you still maintain a, a portion of conscripts, but they're relegated to un, basically mostly unskilled tasks. And then perhaps you try to encourage the cream of that crop to enlist on contract? Absolutely. And keep in mind, keep in mind the cost effectiveness. I mean, uh, look, look at our defense budget versus Russia. So the Russian view is, well, frankly, we can't, they can't afford to have an entire contract man force anyway. Um, so it just makes sense for cost saving purposes and, and practicality to, to have a percentage of the force be conscript manned because you don't need them. To, you don't need them to be volunteer contract troops. Right. It's like conscripts are kind of like the, you know, the, the B league, <laughs> right. And then you draft from, from there. To some extent, yeah, by and large, and this, by the way, I mean, for example, you can see this in um, Petsnov's units. So, if you think of Russian elite infantry, the units that are really elite infantry are Russian airborne, which are basically like Russia's Marine Corps. They're they're not. I mean, large parts of them are not really an airborne. They're meant for rapid reaction force and uh, assault in initial time of war. Uh, same thing could be said for naval infantry. It's another form of lead infantry. Russian Spetsnaz actually are not. If you look at a typical Russian Spetsnaz unit, you'll see that typically one company is contract staffed and three of them are conscripts. And then they try to get the guys that are in the conscript companies to at the end of their period of service sign up to be um, volunteer servicemen. 
And do you have a sense of the morale in, in the military? You know, it's pretty hard to gauge. So my sense of it is that it's much higher than it ever was. And statistically, sort of public opinion polls seem to reflect that not only is there a um, dramatic increase in public perception of sort of dignity and pride in, in service of Russian armed forces, dramatically compared to what it was, because I think if you look around what it was, it was very low. And everybody was bribing their way to get out of being drafted, right? Because it was a terrible public perception of what it was to go into into the Russian forces. Um, uh, I, I, from my perception, is I think that this is if maybe not the only one, but perhaps one of the best recognized achievements of the regime of the last couple of years: the restoration of public pride in the Russian armed forces as also one of those things that seems to underwrite Russia's, you know, emerged role in uh, international politics and restoration of a status as a great power and all those things, right, that the, that the, um, that the regime tries to, tries to convey. Now, um, Russia's military has been, been active in, in two theaters in the last four years or so. There's eastern Ukraine and, of course, in Syria. And you, and you, you said that the assessments of the Russian military before 2014, you know, were, um, you know, too low. They were under underestimated. Um, and so and then when I remember when Russia got involved in the Syria campaign, there was a lots of kind of doomsday reporting about this being in New Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera. So what is your assessment of the Russian military's performance in these two theaters in eastern Ukraine and in Syria? Okay, um, just to clarify, by eastern Ukraine, you don't mean Crimea, you mean Donbass, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, first on assessment performance. Um, it's it's pretty hard to assess Russian performance in eastern Ukraine for the simple reason of how that fight is is being run and led, right? Where um, R- Russian forces are essentially rotating battalion tactical groups through eastern Ukraine, and there have only been two major fights in eastern Ukraine, widely called Battle of Ilovysk and Lugansk Airport in uh, August, early September of 2014, and then Battle of the Baltimore, which was January, February 2015, right? Um, but Overall assessment performance. So the Russian military has not fought as a military in eastern Ukraine, if that makes sense. Not fielding brigades and divisions with air power and all this. It's been selectively applying certain capabilities, right? Air defenses to basically shut down the Ukrainian Air Force. Um, and and the evolution of Russian approach was you could see through in the early phase of the conflict until August 2014, by and large... Russia was engaged in a process of fitful escalation and improvisation as far part of a bid for leverage against the interim government in Ukraine and then Petro Poroshenko's government to get them to concede to a process of decentralization. And all these phases failed. And then the Russian general staff truly comes into this entire affair in August 2014, where they abandoned any pretense of supplying separatists with um, equipment that's matched that the sort of equipment that could have been captured from Ukrainian forces, uh, Russian forces directly enter the fray, but they enter the fray in a very limited fashion. Here's the truth. The battle for eastern Ukraine has involved very few forces, a very low density of force on the battlefield, and a pretty small number of Russian units involved in both fights. I'm talking a few thousand troops and just a few battalion tactical groups and, and no grand, uh, the way it's often depicted in the media is like large armor battles, and these things taking place, and most of the fights in Ukraine have been company-sized fights between maybe four tanks fighting four other tanks. I mean, that's the reality. If you look at, like, for example, the total losses 
of separatist man tanks that Russians provided them and some tanks that belong to regular Russian units. For the entire three years, you might get maybe 60, 72 battalions worth, out of which it's pretty clear that maybe eight plus or 10 were tops, regular manned Russian tanks, right? So a reason I'm kind of you know, citing these examples is that uh, it's very hard to assess the general performance of Russian armed forces on the basis of eastern Ukraine. In the fights where they did engage, 2014-2015, um, they did quite well. What it demonstrated is that uh, in terms of equipment and training, Russian good enough is more than sufficient without even getting into the sort of higher echelons and better tiers of capability, is good enough to take on any former Soviet republic in the post-Soviet space and beat them, and beat them quite readily, right, at, at a fairly low cost. So what that showed was that um, they, definitely, they definitely have restored a lot of conventional potential. potential. And then on Syria, I'll just wait, wait, let me, say, let me just ask sorry. you something about the, 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 what, is the, what is the status right now of Russian military involvement in eastern Ukraine? Oh, great question. So, um, by and large, uh, Russian forces are serving as a quick reaction force in Ukraine. They're there providing sort of key technical capability, logistical support, right? Air defense, electronic warfare, uh, logistic support, and and um, helping kind of glue the effort together. But the, in terms of the size of Russian forces in Ukraine, it's very small. Petro Poroshenko himself recently said there's only about 3,000 Russian troops in Ukraine, which for a total separatist so-called proxy force that is estimated to be a 30,000 plus gives you a ratio of maybe at best 1 to 10 in terms of Russian forces relative to uh, separatist locals and other volunteers that came from Russia to fight who, who, were, who were armed and funded, right? Um, most of the Russian military is just across the border. And that uh, military footprint is quite sizable. I think the Russian goal in terms of creating permanent garrison bases across the border from Ukraine is ultimately to withdraw completely and to have a very large military force that's going to be permanently stationed um, on Ukraine's borders. And that's going to serve as a very capable conventional deterrent to any notions that there might be in Ukraine that there is a military solution to this problem. But I think the Russian dream is to, as always, reinsert the Donbass back into Ukraine. If they can, leave with the regular forces and be stationed just across the border so nobody thinks that they can, that they can militarily uh, solve this problem. Um, and then somehow settle this matter. Now, now in Syria, what, what, is, what do you have to say about the Russian forces there? Well, Syria was hard for anybody to get right because nobody had seen Russian forces uh, fighting in expeditionary conflict in so many decades. And most of the people that, you know, did that analysis and knew anything about it are long gone from government or frankly dead. So there wasn't much analytical capacity left to make good judgments. Um, the typical trajectory of uh, responses to uh, Russian action that I've noticed in D.C. follows a somewhat predictable pattern in the line of first they wouldn't dare. Oh, they've dared to do it, but they can't possibly succeed. It'll be a quagmire. Oh, it looks like they're succeeding, and it's not a quagmire. Uh, and now um, let's over-aggrandize you know, Russian performance and, and say that it actually turned out that they were 12 feet tall because we were wrong about the first two things. So, <laughs> I mean, but that's the reality of it. So the initial response to Russian intervention in Syria was, ah, it was a quagmire, predetermined failure. They'll never win, you know. No one succeeds in the Middle East. 
et cetera, et cetera. But so the truth of it is that um, uh, in Russian forces, for themselves, this was frankly an experiment. They had no idea how well they would do. And so they've consistently uh, been very careful to calibrate and modulate their presence in Syria to the bare minimum required. They're quite wary of losses, and they're quite wary of having any sort of sizable footprint um, that would get them overly vested in the conflict that they can't readily withdraw from. That said, with fairly limited application of air power, I'm talking 34 fixed-wing airframes, aircraft, maybe 16 helicopters, no more than 50 to 60 aircraft at any given time on the ground there. It's really modest. Actually, very modest, given that you are talking about one of the largest air forces in the world, still. Um, uh, And pretty very tiny ground footprint in terms of Russian special forces, some artillery support ground units, and uh, PMCs, basically mercenaries that that are uh, supporting the Syrian effort. I mean, you can judge for yourself, clearly they've done well, and actually they've achieved most of their objectives, right? They've by and large annihilated what was left of any Syrian moderate opposition. That which they didn't annihilate, they radicalized such that they became now undesirables for the United States, and their goal was to get, get them to do one or the other, such that there was no credible alternative to Assad. And they've retaken quite a bit of territory from, uh, uh, from ISIS as well. Um, now... Plenty of things did not go Russia's way, and you could see that actually they chunked the intervention in Syria very cleverly into three separate political campaigns. So from a Russian perspective, the way they've shaped the political perception of the intervention, they're actually not in Syria since September 2015. Um, that was one campaign, and then they remember they ended it. March 2016, they announced, listen, it's over, we've won, here's the medals. And now I'm going to kick all the all the Russian reporters from Al Hamaim Air Base because I don't want you guys to see what we're doing here. That was the end of campaign one. The reason they did that is they realized that they were actually in for a longer haul and they had some different operational objectives from Syrian and Iranian forces and that they needed to kind of recalibrate um, what the campaign in Syria really would be. So that went from March 2016 till end of 2016 when the Kuznetsov carrier strike group went down there. And then afterwards, they again announced the withdrawal, if you remember, at the turn of the year. And that was like the end of the second, that was essentially the fact of the end of the second campaign. And now they're sort of in their third campaign in Syria, which may well end with um, seizure of Dalzor and defeat of ISIS, where once again, they will bring, they will say we're withdrawing and we're handing out medals. Um, On the whole, I will say, one, Russian air power has done really well and what was remarkable is that with the exception of one aircraft recently, not a single one of the old Soviet workhorses crashed. Second is that this was a, a fight led by old generation Soviet platforms and new generation um, Russian systems that were meant to replace them with a lot of Russian defense contractors there monitoring and supporting them. So it's like a transition period between the modernized Soviet military and the new Russian military, the military that we're going to be seeing in conflicts throughout the 2020s and the 2030s, taking over from it. And you saw saw a proliferation of all sorts of technologies that Russians rapidly adopted, like drones, a lot of which are basically Israeli drones that they're using to support this conflict. But if you were to compare side by side the disastrous performance of Russian air power in Georgia in 2008 to Russian performance in Syria, it is like, for them, it was a monumental leap. Still, that said, basically... um, Russians, by and large, are kind of where we were maybe in the early 90s in terms of using largely unguided munitions, 
Um, Russian precision guy ammunition still have a long way to go. It's clear they're not very precise. And Russian air power still has quite a way, ways to go in terms of actually developing the systems that allow you, like targeting pods that allow you to deploy precision guy ammunitions. And so they're testing a lot of these systems in Syria, just like everybody else's. To be honest, the Syrian conflict has been a test bed for Russians, French, even us, in terms of new equipment. Yeah, and this is actually what one of the questions I have is, and, and that is, in what ways is this military performance in Syria somewhat of a, an, a big advertisement for weapon sales to, you know, third world countries and the like? Well, it absolutely is. It didn't begin that way, but very quickly into it, when they saw that they were actually doing fairly well and they weren't taking serious losses, most of their losses have been among the helicopter crews, uh, it, it became very clear to the Russians that this is actually a really great advertisement for arms exports, and they began introducing different weapon systems into Syria um, simply to show them off and for the purpose of sales. And they had a lot of success with that. To be honest, since their intervention in Syria, all sorts of countries have began signing orders with Russia for um, helicopters, air defense systems, heavy multi-role fighters. I think K-52 and my 28 helicopters will do well. Su-30SM, and let's say the export variant of the Su-34 bomber that you regularly see being used in Syria is of interest in that. Plus, on top of that, um, as you saw, heavy use of uh, long-range precision strike munitions, ship-launch caliber, submarine-launch caliber, uh, air-to-ground Alcoms, air-launch cruise missiles from Russia's uh, long-range aviation. Those, by the way, some of those displays are not for marking. Some of those displays are part of a strategic communication piece that Russia's having in the United States about um, uh, its newfound capabilities and what it can do with the uh, sea launch land attack cruise missiles. But uh, suffice to say, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, a large part of this has been uh, to garner greater weapon sales and export. And in this respect, one of the things that's fascinating about the Russian intervention in Syria is it's actually been incredibly cheap. It's been incredibly cheap both in terms of political human costs for their military. I won't speak about Syrians. Obviously, um, number, one, number, one, number one loser in the Syrian conflict has been, has been the Syrian population. But, but in terms of cost, I would honestly put the intervention of Syria at some billions. And by which I mean I think it probably can be counted on one hand. And when you talk about benefits from weapon sales, I think they will offset a substantial percentage of the cost of this intervention in terms of new sales garnered. No, it's it's it, that's what's really fascinating to me about the how um, I mean, like you said, like these these military theaters, these war theaters are first off to test new stuff, um, and then of course for you know advertising possibly your old stuff <laughs> as it, particularly if, if if russia is in this pattern of of modernizing its weaponry it has to do something with the stuff the old stuff that still works and a good thing to do with that is just sell it off somewhere right or frankly use it so a lot of what you see in terms of because look russia's military is very firepower heavy it's never been very good on doing things precisely but it's been always very good in area of effect saturation firepower and basically killing everything you see and in that regard i mean look what they've been doing is dumping a lot of early 90s munitions, both in Ukraine and in Syria, and these are all things when you look on the books in the ledger and you're going to say this thing has a 25, 30-year shelf life, so let's get rid of all this first. And from their perspective, most – obviously, they have much more flexible rules of engagement. Most of the conflict in Syria does not um, – from their perspective, does not require employment of expensive precision guy munitions. So they're sort of freely dumping this arsenal. And – 
look, let's be honest, it's been effective. You can look at the you can look at the results on the ground. So, you know, one of the things that we're seeing in Syria uh, is the use of by the Russian military of use of more military contractors and, and mercenaries and things like this. And this, of course, seems to have been a standard practice you know, for the American military since the Iraq war in 2003. So talk about the, the use of mercenaries and, and private military contractors by the Russian military. What role does it play? Is this part of the future for them? You know, things like this. That's a great question. I mean, I think that's a fascinating topic on which there's been a lot of good reporting lately coming out in Russia. Um, you know, private military uh, companies and, and mercenaries, as we understand them in a traditional sense, are, are somewhat really operating in a very gray legal area in Russia. Because technically in Russia, they're illegal on the one hand. On the other hand, we have um, a number of these uh, groups that we know operate uh, in Syria and had fought in eastern Ukraine. So it seems to me, at least it strikes me, that a substantial percentage of them are not necessarily businesses per se, but quite a few of them belong as sort of a an arm of uh, the Russian government and are owned by Prigozhin, one of these um, very prominent uh, individuals and uh, oligarchs. Uh, so in this regard, um, PMCs and mercenaries are a pretty important tool that's emerged. In, in the state's toolkit because it allows them to use force that is not even necessarily has to be deniable um, with few political consequences because if mercenaries get killed, well, they're mercenaries. They knew what they signed up for. Um, and allows them to supplement uh, uh, any conflict where they're engaged in with further auxiliaries because what seems to me that the clear Russian preference is that, okay, to use the bare minimum amount of force required to achieve political objectives. And the ideal preference is that local forces will do most of the fighting in eastern Ukraine or in Syria, for example, and Russian forces will be key units in support, and they will pulse military power into the battle space to achieve particular effects and then withdraw. And in fact, you rarely see Russians sort of entering the battle space and then withdrawing instead of fighting to achieve dominance. Now, the second best to local forces has always been, well, what if local forces aren't good enough or if they're worthless, which happens quite a bit? Okay, then you supplement them with mercenaries to the extent you can. But Russia did not have a very sort of sizable corporations like, like our Blackwater, which has changed its name several times now, that could supply something like 10,000 fighters, right? In fact, I think one of the challenges Russians had early on in eastern Ukraine is that if you think um, uh, in terms of Russian Russians trying to get mercenaries, volunteers to find Ukraine, it's actually not that easy to generate that capability very fast. In order, nor can you put an advertisement somewhere, you know, online saying, looking for 5,000 guys to fight in secret war, you know, paying big money, right? It's very hard. If you want to have a clandestine conflict and you suddenly need to have 5,000 mercenaries, it's actually hard to come by. So naturally, the first place they turned to was North Caucasus, where you can find standing arm formations in in Dagestan, Chechnya, and also in Abkhazia and South Ossetia, and you can get small number of units, like company-sized elements, um, to come fight, typically during a summer season, and they have to go back home to their families anyway. Now, that's not what I'm discussing. With private military co um, companies that have emerged, these are seem to be, uh, by and large, people who had served in the Russian military before, had fought a number of conflicts, such as Second Chechen War, um, maybe in, in Georgia, uh, in parts of that conflict, and now have seen some combat tours in eastern Ukraine 
and have readily signed up for much bigger money to go fight in Syria. Um, it's hard to get a handle on exactly how many of them there are, but he, I don't think it's very large uh, size of sort of mercenaries compared to what the West has available in genuine PMCs. The reason why, of course, is one, private military companies are not legal in Russia. Um, you know, there was that famous case of uh, the Savannah Corps, the guys who went back from Syria and then got, got tried and sentenced to three years for having fought in Syria, even though Russia is a legitimate, by Russian law, a legitimate um, combatant and party to the conflict in Syria because it was legally invited by the Syrian government and signed an entire agreement, a memorandum with Syria on like a status of forces agreement on the presence of Russian forces in Syria. Um, nonetheless, they got sort of tried and sentenced for, for being mercenaries on behalf of the Russian cause by, by uh, Russian court system. Um, it strikes me that one, uh, this area is expanding. Right, the Russians basically have seized on the advantage of mercy. Because here's the truth: mercenaries have done a lot of hard work in Syria, and they really make up the difference between for a lot of Syrian forces, the militias that are fighting there, many of which are worthless in terms of real military power and staying power on the battlefield. And mercenaries make the difference in conflicts where you actually have very low density of forces, and it has an impact. Then you can see them as kind of like. Um, your initial sign of Russian desire or, or consideration of intervention or, or developing a stronger role in the conflict, for example, in Libya, once you start see Russian PMCs emerging, since these are not, most of these are not really full-fledged businesses, but are operating under sanction and, and permission of the state, it suggests that wherever you see Russian mercenaries, the Russian government actually has an interest. And that the Russian government is at the very least, if not looking to support uh, fairly low cost, um, a particular side in the conflict, that it's in a, what you might call an exploratory role. Yeah. Do you, do you also, uh, just to make a, a comparison between, say, you know, uh, mercenaries, the use of private companies in Iraq, um, the big boom, it seems to me, that for these companies was actually in the in the occupation phase rather than the initial conflict. So you think that, you know, whenever... Syria is all said and done, or even now in, in, in territories recaptured, do you think that Russian uh, private military companies will will, inc- will increase in their presence and in, in operations in a, a post-conflict setting? I actually don't, because I don't think that they're a real business. Unlike in the West, where PMCs first really took off in the 1990s, and they fought in a lot of these internal conflicts in Africa, um, where uh, professional fighters with some advanced Western capabilities could make a serious difference for a very low-tech government with terrible training for its forces. Russian PMCs seem to be one of the, one of the longer arms of the state. Uh, and um, I don't see any conflict where Russia is remotely interested in uh, long-term post-occupation and paying reconstruction costs and all that. I think that they will always have jobs in terms of um, guarding VIPs, providing some security, um, but by and large, I think they're going to move from conflict to conflict space. And I don't think this force is ever going to get large because uh, Russian state really calibrates how much of a paramilitary force it wants to develop. There's a reason, I think, why these why they don't have legal PMCs because they, they don't want to have um, – they don't want to have a for- – they want to have a, a capability that's very useful in conflicts. But they don't want to establish large private military enterprises, nor do they want to have a lot of these fighters necessarily. 
So I think they're likely going to be employed from conflict to conflict as an auxiliary force. And then when they're not used, because it's a capacity you can search, right? You can just pick up lots of people on contract. And they make good money. I mean, some of these people, look look what they report. They make, on average, some of these people make about 220,000 rubles per month and up to 300,000. Uh, in the event of their death, depending on the contract, the family gets paid one to four million rubles. It's actually, in terms of in terms of salary, I mean, you can see why that would be lucrative for an experienced soldier. So, what's 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 the reasoning for the caution then to not allow this to expand or even become, you know, a larger type of military business that eventually pulls away from the state or is a permanent arm of the state? Control. I think that. Um, at least my perspective on it, that Russian state security services don't want any such things to have a life of their own. They want pretty tight control over them, and they probably prefer for them to operate in a gray legal space where uh, this remains a tool rather than an entity or a business on, on, onto itself. Because in the United States, um, actually in the United States, you can see, my, my personal opinion, you can see the problem with having Blackwater having become such a large company. And uh, some of the messes that got involved in, particularly in Iraq, right? It, so, uh, but but all that aside, I, I honestly don't I honestly don't think that the mercenary force in Russia will become uh, will ever become a really full fledged commercial enterprise. Just like a lot of such things are at best faux commercial enterprises, where really behind them is a an oligarch or a person, a businessman that's tied to the state, and he is using. Uh, this instrument on behalf of state interests and sanctioned by them, right? And that it's sort of, you know, it's a, it's a faux business, basically. Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of vassal mm-hmm. <laughs> of That's the it. state. Yeah, That's yeah. Um, so, you know, you've been a consistent critic. I mean, when you were on this podcast before, we talked about hybrid war and you, you successfully have been dismantling that for a long time. And, of course, the new one is the Gerasimov Doctrine, which uh, you've also and others – um, have been dismantling. So uh, instead of going over those arguments as to why they're problematic and and, and have become empty concepts amongst pundits, how would you suggest we, instead of those concepts, how should we understand uh, Russian foreign policy moves? Look, to me, these, to be frank, I, I don't think that these these were ever substitutions really for foreign policy concepts, Right. These were very, um, uh, but kind of uh, ill-informed uh, takes on uh, Russian approaches to warfare, uh, Russian military doctrine and strategy in conflict, right? And and hybrid hybrid warfare, as you know, was basically something stolen from a concept that Frank Hoffman originally developed that was meant for for um, forces like Hezbollah and just kind of. And then, and then rapidly destroyed by the Russia watcher fieldward became everything. But now, by the way, now hybrid warfare clearly in Europe is basically talking about Russian political warfare, information warfare, and all, all these much softer non-military mean. Uh, okay, so the way we should understand sort of Russian approaches there, look, uh, there has been for a very long time a conversation within the Russian military, as always takes place, because... Uh, Russian military theorists and writers are very focused on what future warfare will look like, what the nature of modern war will is versus what future warfare could and might be. They're less technologically focused and more conceptually focused, and they often discuss sort of correlation of forces and methods, right? What what 
what these might be and maybe in an in information domain or in conventional warfare okay these ideas over time and many of these debates have congealed to a much better conception within the russian military which as i described earlier is a very conventional firepower heavy military right it always has been uh to basically um, broaden their understanding to the fact of how they will answer uh, challenges that they see from the West, that, for example, they describe color revolutions, basically political warfare, irregular armed formations, and um, the sort of dawning on the Russian or armed forces of the strength and importance of the information domain. Right? All that being said, Russian military, by and large, is still a military oriented around conventional firepower. You will not find a single conflict where uh, some strange, innovative Russian hybrid approaches ever achieved Russian political objectives. Because it always ends with conventional limited war. That's how Eastern Ukraine ended. I mean, Ukrainians did not sign the Minsk 1 and the Minsk 2 agreement because of super fantastically effective Russian hybrid war. They signed it at gunpoint at the end of a T-72B3 tank. And if hybrid war ever had any success, then tanks and heavy artillery and MRS systems would not be needed. But they are needed in every single conflict Russia engages in. Because, because there's actually no, there's literally no use case of successful asymmetric approaches achieving Russian political objectives. And by the way, not necessarily because they wouldn't work, but because for two reasons. One... Um, Russian political objectives are often much higher than what Russia bids for, so ultimately results having to use in, in Russia having to use conventional military power. And two, because they're messy, difficult to control, and often lead to an escalatory dynamic anyway, where you end up bidding in the conflict. And that's why Russia didn't, didn't do any such thing in Syria, just went straight with conventional military power and intervention. Um, that being said, I think the way we should understand Russian, what you said, foreign policy approaches, one, uh, versus become much more effective at uh, course of diplomacy and understanding uh, what the real use of military power is since it has regained uh, some of the strength of its conventional military. And what that basically is that, look, they have the military back as an instrument of national power. It's quite capable. It's not very large in terms of um, the sort of objectives you can put in front of it. It's expensive to use. Conflict in general in international system is very expensive, and Russia doesn't have a ton of money. So it has to be used selectively and judiciously, and it has to use mostly to compel adversaries towards political objectives rather than occupying lots, large swaths of land, achieving battlefield dominance, doing reconstruction or nation building or any of these things, right? So the Russian approach is, first of all, to the best that they can, use asymmetric approaches, irregular warfare, special forces, mercenaries to the extent that they're available that we discussed earlier, right, in the battle space to try to achieve political objectives, but to shape the response of the adversary, be that Ukraine, Syria, any, or particularly the United States to the West, with Russian conventional military power. Perhaps the best example of that was the annexation of Crimea. What annexed Crimea was not really Russian special forces necessarily, or because almost none of them were used. It was actually mostly regular Russian infantry. But um, what annexed Crimea was the large de deployment of Russian conventional military power on Ukraine's borders, and Russians calling them up and telling them, listen, if you respond with force to our seizure of Crimea, uh, we all know what's going to happen, but odds are that you stand to lose a lot more than just letting us take Crimea, basically. 
hey, you're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to redo the, the Russia-Georgia war and you will get to play the part of Georgia, right? Uh, so the first part of it was that Russian base gunners still look, they, they, they have effective military power, but they have to use it very judicially. They have to use it to coerce adversaries, one. Two, um, by and large, what they're very good at is establishing escalation dominance in the conflict in deploying capabilities that allow them to then play around and try to find leverage over adversaries and always be ready to withdraw and cut their losses, right? And, and in that regard, I think they've been effective with the, um, of course, exception of Eastern Ukraine, which ended up being like a very messy improvis improvisation where even though Russia's kept its costs very low, I mean, if you're trying to invade the largest country in Europe, happens to be your neighbor, and and you want to shape their strategic orientation and keep this whole grappling hook at them in terms of what the potential cost of that would be i think russians didn't achieve a lot of their objectives but they kept their costs very low okay um to be clear there is no such thing as the gerasimov doctrine and never has been this is a banal invention frankly uh Two, Gerasimov, who's an armored warfare officer, is very far from leading Russian military theorists on political asymmetric warfare. Although I'm sure he's very pleased to find out that according to political and Western writing, he's brilliant visionary of Russian armed forces, revolutionized all concepts of asymmetric warfare. You know, I, um, it's just fantastic. What you, what, it's actually quite complicated. If you read his article, for example, in VPK in uh, early 2016, uh, in... Uh, writing about the intervention Syria, what by and large Russian military has been trying to do is, of course, while understanding the importance of political warfare, information warfare, and the relevance of um, uh, non-military approaches in shaping the battlefield and the outcome of war, they still try to marry what they want, which is lots of, lots of advanced military capabilities, right? Airplanes, bombers, tanks, ships long-range cruise missiles, the things they want and they are buying, with the threat, and the threat to Russian state first and foremost is color revolutions, political warfare, illegal armed formations, and all that, right? And so he actually had a brilliant article uh, that, ex that, that exposes quite clearly, and this was a lot of what their, their writing's been about too, that he basically said, listen, we have defeated Western hybrid warfare in Syria. They attempted regime change against Assad, okay? They funded all these proxy forces. They supplied them with weapons. We bombed them to death with new precision-guided munitions. Thank you, Vladimir Putin, for Russian modernization and state armament program. As you can see, we have the answer. The answer to Western hybrid warfare in Syria is very clear. Bomb it to death, and then it's dead. And we should keep buying this stuff because... And by the way, this is a very typical Russian chief general staff writing, which is the supposed leading thinker of of, uh, uh, you know, of, of Gerasimov doctrine, basically, is just trying to marry um, Russian uh, force expansion and modernization to the threats and conflicts that they're currently engaged in, and, and, and justifying those procurement missions, which is very, very typical. And, and finally, when it, when it comes to uh, the Russian military and um, foreign policy in general, what kinds of things are you uh, keeping tabs on for the future? A rather bad question, but I would say, uh, first and foremost, I'm keeping tabs on what's actually going to happen with the state armament program that was supposed to be announced this year and is delayed, but they promise will be signed by the end of the year. 
and the Russian defense budget. I know these are probably the two least sexiest topics, but um, <laughs> to be frank, defense spending and state armament program is an important determinant and tell sign of a lot of things. And um, the fight for the size of how much money they're going to spend on it's already been had. But uh, what I'm trying to track is actually who will be the winners and losers in the program. What are they going to fund? Uh, the things that are of interest to me are, are, one, like what are the areas of focus going to be in 2018 to 2025? Understanding that the spending, a lot of it's kind of backloaded uh, in terms of how much money they actually have available on hand in the coming years to spend now. Next is, as always, Russian force posture. Look, because in political discourse in the West, people often say, well, we can't judge Russian intent, so we have to look at capability. And the answer is that's not really true, nor is it very useful. Actually, military analysis can tell you an awful lot about an adversary's intent. It is revealed by, one, the forces the adversary gets, two, how they position and posture them, three, how they exercise them, because they tell you what they're going to do. They can't do it if they don't practice for it. That's not how militaries work. They can't just all wake up one day and do a surprise thing that they never trained in. So... Uh, you actually can do, can tell quite a bit about intent. Whether or not policymakers at all remotely want to listen to you is a separate story. But um, So what interests me is what is going to be the Russian military footprint in terms of ground forces? How much long-range precision gun munitions are they going to buy? Caliber cruise missiles, um, Iskander missile regiments, uh, air-launched cruise missiles, what the expansion will be in Russia's long-range precision strike regime, right? Um, as always, there's an interest in Russian nuclear forces, both strategic and non-strategic. Uh, but uh, you know, and and I have a personal interest for in in SSO Russian Special Operations Command and seeing, you know, because they've had such a large and outsized role in Syria and seeing what the expansion of that capability is. Because that really was in 2012 the addition of a capability that the Russian military had long missed: a Tier One Special Forces unit that could conduct extraterritorial operations like seizing, let's say, Crimean Parliament building or, or all the various things that they've done in Syria. And that is a, a, um, a capability that I think Russia will not only expand but will continue using because it's low cost, it's deniable, and it's very effective if backed by the threat of conventional military intervention. That was Michael Kaufman, a research scientist at CNA Corporation and fellow at the Kennan Institute, where he specializes in security and defense in Eurasia. He also blogs on the Russian military at his site, Russian Military Analysis. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, Please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblestnesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.
Ahead. 